putting on Christ, but put ye on the Lord Jesus Christ, and make not provision for the flesh, to fulfill the lusts thereof. Rom. 13.14. It is my purpose to show, I what is intended by this command. 2. What is implied in obeying it. 3. Some of the essential conditions of obedience to it. 4. Obligation to obey this command is universal. The obedience to the requirements of this text is naturally indispensable to salvation. 6. Some of the consequences of obeying this requirement. 7. Consequences of disobeying it. I what is intended by this command. I observe that the idea is taken from the drama. To put on a person is to assume his character and peculiarities, as an actor does on the stage. This commandment, therefore, enjoins the imitation of Christ, as actors imitate those whom they represent. 2. What is implied in obeying this command? 1. It implies the putting away of selfishness. Christ was not selfish. Selfishness is the preference of self-gratification to the will of God and the good of the universe, and Christ never did this. The Apostle adds, and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill the lusts thereof. Here, he contrasts putting on Christ and making provision for the flesh, which is the same as selfishness. Paul was more philosophical than any of the secret writers, and employs the language works of the flesh, following after the flesh, carnal mind, and see, to designate the nature of sin. But the whole Bible condemns self-seeking as wrong, and inconsistent with the true service of God, or imitation of Christ. 2. It implies living for the same end for which Christ lived. What was his end? Not the gratification of self, but the well-being of the universe, and whoever puts him, on must adopt the same end. 3. It implies the same singleness of I. Christ's I was not double, but exclusively directed to one end, the glory of God. 4. It implies such a sympathy with him, as to beget animation of him. A profound sympathy is necessary to, and naturally begets imitation. 3. Some of the essential conditions of obedience to this command. 1. The first thing essential, is a deep and intense study of his character, until the great principle of his action is clearly perceived, the real idea of the end for which he lived clearly developed. Persons attempting to imitate others, must give the closest attention. This is essential to the success of a dramatic actor, or any other artist, who, when looking at a picture by West, and observing all its delicate shadings, has not been struck with the deep attention which the artist must have given to his subject. One shade is stronger, and another weaker, exactly exhibiting the position, and form of each limb, and the various expressions of countenance and attitude, appropriate to the circumstances of the person represented. Now in order to express these things, by colorings on the canvas, the artist must have studied most intensely. So it is with a good actor. He does not merely commit, and rehearse his piece, as a schoolboy does on the stage. He does not stand and spout it off in recitation style, but seeks to represent his character in dress, habit, spirit, style, manner, and everything, and in this consists the perfection of the dramatic art. Now the Apostle commands us thus to put on Christ, to imitate him, to give intense thought, to get at the true idea of his character, and to commit the mind fully to the same end, to which he was devoted. To enjoy a piece of poetry, you must put yourself into the same state of mind, in which the author was when he wrote it. Then as you read it, your tone and manner will naturally represent him. This is the difficulty with so many in reading hymns.
they read as though they did not at all apprehend the sentiment, and without emotion. The reason is, either they have not the spirit of devotion, or they have not at all given attention to the sentiment of the hymn. But to represent Christ we must catch his spirit, and make his grand and and aim ours. Then we shall act as he would under like circumstances. 2. Another essential is, you must fully believe, that through grace you can put him on. While you don't believe you can, of course you cannot. No one can intend to do what he believes he cannot do. It is absurd to suppose the contrary. No one intends to fly. Why? Because everyone knows he cannot. We may wish to fly, while we do not believe we can, but to intend it is impossible. So unless you believe you can put on Christ, it is utterly impossible that you should intend to do it, and this is the great reason why so many never actually put him on. 3. You must, therefore, not only fully believe that you can, but you must actually intend to put on Christ to make him your whole example. Unless it is intended, it will never be done by accident. 4. You must be fully prepared to make any sacrifice, you must count the cost, and make up your mind to meet the expense necessary to the accomplishment of this end. You must make any sacrifice of friends, property, or credit, which stand in the way. The Lord Jesus Christ teaches this, and warns persons not to make themselves ridiculous by beginning to build without being able to finish. The truth is, unless persons have made up their minds to the absolute sacrifice of whatever hinders their fully putting on Christ, they have not got hold of the very first principle of religion. 5. You must realize the importance of doing this. Suppose a dramatic author should write an admirable drama adapted powerfully to awaken the attention and arouse the passions of the spectators of its exhibition, but the actors should so poorly prepare themselves and so poorly act it as perfectly to misrepresent him. It is easy to see how they would injure the credit, both of the author and drama. So persons who do not fully put on the Lord Jesus Christ, while they profess to be his followers, are doing him, and his cause, the greatest injury of which they are capable. They should then realize the infinite importance of fully representing him. 6. Another condition of putting on Christ is, that you should keep up a constant intercourse with him. You must commune with him in prayer without ceasing. Who does not know that an actor needs to drink into and commune with the spirit of the author profoundly, if he would truly represent him? He must get the state of mind of the man who wrote it, in short he must put on the writer. If he does not he will misrepresent him. So there must be constant communion with the spirit of Christ in order to put him on and act just as he would. 7. You must not trust while there is any unrepented, unconfessed sin between your soul and him. You must keep a clear medium. I will explain what I mean. You have seen two friends who have been for a long time agreed and have taken sweet counsel together, but by and by a little different creeps in between them, a little mist begins to obscure the medium, and now, when they meet, you will begin to see it in the eye and countenance, there is a little flutter in their manner, and unless it be immediately removed, it will increase, until, finally, they will turn their backs upon each other. So with a husband and wife, how careful should they be to keep a clear medium of mental intercourse? Suppose a husband has grieved his wife. Now, if he is a man of sensibility, he cannot be at ease. He goes to pray, he remembers the wound which he has inflicted, he can pray no further, he rises from his knees and goes, and confesses to his wife the injury he has done her. The cloud is now removed from the medium, and he is happy, 
so with the Christian. If he has grieved Christ and injured his tender feelings, he can have no farther communion with him until he has repented and confessed his faults and the tender breathings of mutual love are again restored. 8. You must cease from all self-dependence. So long as you depend on yourself, you will see no need of putting on Christ. 9. You must avail yourself of his exceeding great and precious promises. You must realize what the promises were given for, and that they were given for you personally. The Apostle Peter says, Whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises, that by these we might be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. The design of the promises, then, is to be given us a universal likeness to the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, a promise is good for nothing unless it be fulfilled. 10,000 promises, of such a character, would be of no more use, and a book of checks given to a poor man, by Mr. Astor, which he carries about closed up, and never uses. 4. Obligation to obey this command is universal. 1. By this, it is not intended, that all are to do exactly the same things which Christ did, for no one, is, in all respects, in the same circumstances. As circumstances vary, outward duties differ. Christ practiced celibacy, and, in the circumstances in which he was placed, this was his duty. But it never could be the duty of mankind, generally, to imitate him in this particular, and in many other things. 2. But it is intended that all are bound to do as he did, so far as their circumstances are the same, that they are to do what they suppose he would do, if he were in their circumstances, for example, if he were a father, a merchant, a mechanic, a lawyer, or a citizen. In early life he was a carpenter, and labored with his father at his trade. Let a carpenter ask these questions, what sort of a carpenter was Jesus Christ? How honest was he? How did he do his work? How did he associate and converse with his fellow workmen? Now just that which you suppose him to be, you are to be. Suppose the Lord Jesus Christ were a merchant, upon what principles would he conduct his business? Or, if he were a physician, how would he practice? Would he avoid visiting the poor, and seek to engross a practice among the rich? 3. You are to consider, how he would act in your circumstances, and do, as you think he would. How important for a minister of the gospel, to inquire what kind of a pastor Christ would be, if he were in his circumstances, and so with every other man, for the same reason. If Christ were a physician, what would he do? Would he try to reject the custom of the poor, and obtain that of the rich? Would he say, when the poor man came soliciting his aid, I shall not get much money for this, therefore, I do not care whether I attend to it, or not. Now, beloved brethren, in this congregation, who are physicians, are you such, as you think Christ would be, taking into the account the difference of circumstances? So, you may take any other occupation, even the lowest, for none, that is honest, is too low to forbid the supposition, of his being in similar circumstances. It was with a design to illustrate this, that he washed his disciples' feet. In the east they wear sandals, which expose their feet to the hot sands, and it was customary for the lowest servant of the house to wait at the door with water, to wash the feet of visitors. Now the Savior did this, to inculcate the lesson of lowliness of heart and to show the spirit with which all should perform the duties of life. Whatever may be your condition, whatever you suppose Christ would be in your place, just that, you ought to be. And it is an important question for each one to ask, 
Would Christ pursue my calling, if placed in my circumstances, and would he pursue it, as I do? 4. That it is a universal duty to put on Christ is evident from the following facts, that it is just right, that all can do it by his grace, that universal reason demands it, that it is essential to the good of the universe, and that sinners are as really commanded to do it, as saints are. The obedience to the requirement of this text, is naturally indispensable to salvation. 1. By this, it is not intended, that no one can be saved who has not always done this. 2. But, so far as their knowledge extends, they are to put him on, and live devoted to the same end. 1. Because everything short of the Susan. 2. Nothing short of intending to be, or do, what he would be, or do, with our light, and in our circumstances, can be acceptable to God, ye cannot serve God and mammon. What does this mean? Not that ye cannot serve God at one time, and mammon, at another but that you must be entirely devoted either to one, or the other, and cannot serve both at the same time. 3. Benevolence, is a unit, and will always manifest itself alike in all, so far as their circumstances are similar. 4. Christ was no more than virtuous, and you must be no less, or you cannot be saved. I have often been astonished, that people talk, as, if Christ did something more than his duty and performed works of supererogation, as if such a thing were possible. Duty, is what benevolence requires. Now, if Christ should do more than benevolence requires, it could not be benevolence, nor duty, and consequently, not virtue. I would ask, was God in making the atonement, any more benevolent than he ought to be? If so, he was not virtuous in it. The truth is, people are in the dark on this subject, no being in the universe can perform works of supererogation, for every one is required to do his whole duty. Christ was perfectly benevolent, and this was his duty, and so must you be if you put him on. 5. You must be like him, or you never can be with him. 6. Some of the consequences of obeying this requirement. And here, I wish to be exceedingly candid and keep nothing back. I have often marked how much the Lord Jesus Christ differed from many who set themselves up as reformers. He would often press his hearers, till almost all of them would forsake him. Once, all left him, but his twelve disciples, and he turned to them and said, Will ye also go away? Implying that he would rather lose them than to keep back the truth. And we must not preach a false Christ, or you will have the livery of heaven and the temper of the world. 1. The first consequence I mention, is, you will have much opposition. You can expect no better usage, than Christ received. It is enough for the servant, that he be as his master. 2. You may expect great trials. This is the inheritance of all who will live godly in Christ Jesus. Look at Paul. While he was a Pharisee, he went on smoothly. The gales of popular favor swelled his sails. But when he became the preacher of the cross, ah! Then he knew what it was to go against wind and tide. 3. Men will accuse you of having a bad spirit. They have always brought this charge against the true followers of Christ, and especially against Christ himself. He said so much about their teachers, creeds, and traditions, and rebuked them so plainly, that they finally tried and executed him as a blasphemer. 4. You will need great meekness and at the same time great decision of character. Without both of these qualities, you cannot endure the shock of a world arrayed against you. 5. 
you will subject yourself to much misapprehension. Men will not understand you. Many wonder why Christians are so misunderstood. But it is not at all wonderful. Who was ever more misunderstood than Jesus Christ? The simple fact is, a selfish mind does not understand the principle upon which a true Christian acts. 6. If you are misunderstood, you will of course be misrepresented. This you must expect. 7. It will subject you to the loss of many friends. They will think you are ultra, extravagant, and carrying matters too far. And every new step you take, you will see an additional falling off. They will walk no more with you. But all the consequences are not evil. 4. 8. You will inherit his peace of mind, and this is worth more than all the world can give. You will sleep just as sweetly, eat with just as much relish, and enjoy the tranquil hours just as really as if you had all the world's favor. Persons often wonder whether such are not unhappy. I answer, nay. They are the only persons who know what true happiness is. 9. His joy will be fulfilled in you. This is his promise, and his true followers sympathize with him in all the joys he had. 10. You will share his glory in being the representative of the true God. And the glory which thou gavest me, I have given them, that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them, and thou in me, that they may be made perfect in one, and that the world may know that thou hast sent me, and hast loved them as thou hast loved me. Christ was sent to reveal the true character of God. He took the law which lay on tables of stone, and acted it out, thus showing mankind just what God was. Without such a manifestation, as was thus made of his true character, men must have always remained in ignorance. What is God? A glorious, infinite, and invisible spirit, lying back in the bosom of eternity, where no eye can reach. What finite mind could comprehend him? He must reveal himself, and to this end, he concentrated his glory in Christ, and sent him forth among mankind. Every one, then, who puts on the Lord Jesus Christ, will share this glory with him, of making known to the world the true character of God. 11. You will be able to say, with Paul, for me to live, is Christ. The apostle seems to have had this idea in his mind, that Christ lived his life over again in him. So it will be with you. Christ renews his life in his true followers. 12. You will be able to say from your own consciousness, as John says, truly our fellowship is with the Father, and with his Son Jesus Christ. 13. You will be happy in the highest degree of which you are capable in this life. And you will be no less useful than you are happy. 7. Consequences of disobeying this requirement. 1. If you are a professor of religion, you will be a hypocrite, and people will know it. There are, perhaps, some who are successful in keeping on the mask. But most betray themselves sooner or later, and are known in their true character. 2. You will render peace of mind impossible. 3. You will render yourself justly despicable. All love to see men live up to their profession, and naturally cry out against hypocrisy. 4. You will ruin your own soul, and do the most you can to ruin others. 5. You will bring upon yourself the endless execration of all beings in the universe, both good and bad. Remarks. 1. Inconsistent professors sometimes gain the hollow applause of the unthinking and ungodly. 2. But they never gain the solid respect of any class for any considerable time. Instead of this, 
they really lose it. For as soon as their true character appears, mankind cannot but condemn and abhor it. Their inward want of confidence in such professors is often exhibited in a trying hour. A fact related in my hearing by a Methodist minister made a deep impression on my mind. A wealthy man in the South, who had sat under the preaching of a worldly minister, was taken sick and about to die. His friends asked him if they should send for his minister. He said, No, I do not want him now, we have been together at the horse race. They urged him to send for somebody, and mentioned several. But he rejected them all, and at last told them to call in Tom, one of his colored men, for, said he, I have often heard him pray alone. Tom came, laid his little hat at the door, and inquired what his master wanted. Said the dying man, Tom, do you pray? Yes, master, in my weak way. Can you pray for your dying master? I'll try, he repeated. Come here, then, and pray for me and Tom drew near, and poured out his soul to God, for the dying man. Ah! Uh, the master knew, in his inmost soul, that his minister could not pray. Poor Tom, was the man to pray. 3. The lives of many professors, are a most terrible burlesque on Christianity. Satan, it would seem, has pushed these into the church, to disgrace it. Persons who have a strong sense of the ridiculous, are often tempted to laugh at the absurd notions of religion which some manifest. They never seem to think of asking how Christ would do. I have sometimes seen servants, in families, where they were called to family worship, come in cowering, and get behind the door, altogether away from the family circle. I wonder, if they think it will be so in heaven. In some families I know, it is not their wish, but the choice of the servant, and of course they are not to blame. Since I have been here I have seen persons take up their hats, and leave the house, when they see the colored people sitting among the whites. I wonder, if such people would do so in heaven. Do let me ask, is not this the direct opposite of the Spirit of Christ? How would Christ treat the poor slaves, and the colored people, if he were in this country? 4. See the importance of always bearing in mind the person whom you have undertaken to represent, and the part you are expected to act. For example, all can see that a minister in the pulpit, and everywhere should bear this in mind, and so he should, but no more, really, than any other Christian should in his vocation. 5. It becomes us to inquire whether we have so represented Christ as to give those around us the true idea of religion. Suppose a minister should never ask himself what idea of religion his people get from him. It is easy to see that he would not be able to convey a very definite idea of it to his people. So every professor should do. And now beloved, do you live so as to make the impression that religion is disinterested benevolence? Who would get that idea from you? Said a man not long since, if religion is benevolence, I know of but one man in our church who seems to be religious. How many do you know in this city? Nothing else is religion, do you live so? Do I? If not what will become of our souls? 6. Those who do not put on Christ are the worst kind of heretics. There is no heresy so bad as a false profession. 7. Inconsistent professors are the greatest curse to the world that there is in it. 8. Professors who have not put on Christ should confess to those around them and instantly reform. Confess to your wife, your children, your church, your neighbors. Will you do it? 9. Sinners are altogether without excuse and are as much bound to put on Christ as professors. 10. 
unless every one of us, in his calling, fully intends to put on Christ and keep him on, we are in the way to hell. If you are not what you think Christ would be in your calling, you are not a Christian. How different is this from the common religion? All that we see is pride, and starch, and fashion, and death. Oh! Brethren, let us put on the Lord Jesus Christ, and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill the lusts thereof. If persons under the dominion of a carnal mind do not oppose, it must be owing to one of three causes. First, either they are so convicted that they dare not openly oppose, and even then they are opposed in heart, wink, or, to dly, there is nothing of the Holy Spirit in them, or 3dly, which often happens from an injudicious application of means to the sympathies of the multitude, the operations of the Holy Spirit are kept out of the sinner's view, and covered up in the rubbish of animal feeling. Anything that keeps out of the sinner's view the work of the Holy Spirit, tends to prevent opposition. And everything that exposes to the sinner's view the hand of God, will certainly excite the opposition of his unregenerate heart. That excitement, therefore, which does not call out the opposition of the wicked and wrong-hearted, is either not a revival of religion at all, or it is so conducted that sinners do not see the finger of God in it. Hence we see that the more pure and holy the means are that are used to promote a revival of religion, the more they are stripped of human infirmity and sympathy, and the more like God they are, so much the more, of necessity, will they excite the opposition of all wrong hearts. 4. While a man's heart is wrong upon any subject, it is self-evident that he cannot heartily approve of what is right upon that subject, for this would involve a contradiction. It would be the same as to say, that he could feel both right and wrong upon the same subject at the same time. Hence it appears, that other things being equal, those means, and that preaching, both as to matter and manner, which call forth most of the native enmity of the heart, and that are most directly over against wrong hearts, are nearest right. Star, footnote let it not be thought, that we advocate, or recommend preaching, or using other means, with design to give offense. Nor that we suppose that the gospel cannot be preached, and that means cannot be used in a wrong spirit, and in a manner, that is highly objectionable, and may justly give offense. All such things are to be condemned. But still we do insist that holy things are offensive to unholy hearts, and while hearts remain unholy, they cannot be pleased, but with that which is unholy like themselves. The understanding may approve, the conscience may approve, but the heart will not, and, remaining unholy, cannot approve of that which is holy. If, therefore, a sinner who is under the dominion of a carnal mind, which is enmity against God, is pleased with preaching, it must be either, because the character of God is not faithfully exhibited, or the sinner is prevented from apprehending it in its true light, by inattention, or by being so taken up with the style and manner, as to overlook the offensiveness of the matter, if, therefore, the matter of preaching is right, and the sinner is pleased, there is something defective in the manner, either a want of earnestness, or holy unction, or something else, prevents the sinner from seeing, what preaching ought to show him, that he hates God, and his truth. Hence, we see the folly of those who are laboring to please persons whose affections are in a wrong state upon religious subjects. They cannot be pleased with anything right and holy while their hearts are in this wrong state, for this we have just seen would involve a contradiction. This shows why so much wrong feeling is often stirred up in revivals of religion. It is the natural effect of pure revivals to stir up wrong feeling in wrong hearts. Revivals of religion on earth stir up wrong feeling in hell, they will disturb the same spirit and stir up the same feelings whenever they come in contact with rebellious hearts, whether in the church or out of it.
wherever the Holy Spirit comes or is seen to operate, the opposite spirit is disturbed of course. A great degree of right and holy feeling among saints will naturally stir up a great degree of unholy and wicked feeling in all those hearts that are determinately wrong. The more right and holy feeling there is, the more wrong and unholy feeling there will be, of course, unless sinners and carnal professors bow and submit. They cannot walk together, because they are not agreed, and the more holy and heavenly the saints become in their affections and conduct, the farther apart they will be, until the light of eternity will set them in feeling and affections, as far as sunder as heaven and hell. This shows that the difference between heaven and hell, as it regards moral character, and happiness and misery, consists in the different state of the hearts or affections of their respective inhabitants. This demonstrates, beyond all contradiction, that sinners cannot be saved unless they are born again. In other words, it is plainly impossible, in the nature of things, that sinners should walk and be happy with saints and holy angels without an entire change in their affections. Sinners cannot walk with the saints here. As soon as the saints cease to walk after the course of this world, sinners think it strange that they run not with them to the same excess of riot, speaking evil of them. As soon as Christians awake, and become spiritual and active, holy and heavenly, and break off from their vain and wicked associations with the world, sinners are uniformly distressed and offended. They try to imagine that it is something wrong in the saints and in revivals that offends them. But the truth is, it is the little that is right in the saints, and that in which there is the most of God in revivals that offends them most. And were the saints as holy as angels are, or as holy as they will be in heaven, sinners must of course be so much the farther from having any community of feeling with them, and as saints rise in holiness, and sinners sink in sin, they will go farther, and farther apart forever and ever. I remark, lastly, that this shows why the lives and preaching of the prophets of Christ and his apostles and the revivals of the early ages of the church met with so much more violent opposition from carnal professors of religion and from ungodly sinners and is offered to preachers and revival in these days. It is not to be denied that the saints in those days had trials of cruel mocking and scourging, yea, of bonds and imprisonment, they were stoned, they were sawn asunder, were tempted, were slain with the sword, they wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, tormented, of whom the world was not worthy, wink, they wandered in deserts, in mountains, and in dens and caves of the earth. It is not, and cannot be denied, that the preaching of the prophets, of Christ, and his apostles, and of primitive ministers, was opposed with great bitterness by many professed saints, and by multitudes of ungodly sinners, more than that of any preacher of the present day. Nor is it to be concealed, that professors of religion were often leaders in this opposition, that they stirred up the Romans to crucify Jesus, and afterwards to persecute and destroy his saints, and crucify his apostles that even the religious teachers and learned doctors of the law endeavored to prejudice the multitude against the Savior and to prevent their listening to his discourses, he hath the devil and is mad, said they, why hear ye him? They led the way in opposing the apostles in the revivals in which they were engaged. We must admit, too, that those revivals made a great deal of noise in the world, insomuch that the apostles were accused of turning the world upside down and that sinners were often greatly hardened by the preaching of Christ, and his apostles were filled with great wrath and opposed with such bitterness, that Christ told his apostles to let them alone. In some places where the apostles preached, divers were so hardened that they contradicted 
and blasphemed, and spake evil of this way, insomuch that the apostles were forced to leave and go to other places, and sometimes to leave under very humiliating circumstances, but just escaping with their lives. Now these are facts that we need not blush to meet, as they are easily accounted for, upon the principle contained in the text, and illustrated in this discourse. All these things afford no evidence that the prophets and Christ and his apostles were imprudent and unholy men, that their preaching was too overbearing and severe, or that there was something wrong in the management of revivals in those days. The fact is that the prophets were so much more holy in their lives and so much bolder and more faithful in delivering their messages that Christ was so much more searching and plain and pungent and personal in his preaching, and so entirely separate from sinners in his life. The apostles were so pungent and plain in their dealing with sinners, and professed saints, and so self-denying, and holy in their lives, that carnal professors, and ungodly sinners could not walk with them. The means that were then used to promote revivals were more holy and free from alloy, and they now are. There was less of mere sympathy, and of that hypocritical suavity of manner, and of those embellishments of language that are calculated and designed to court the applause of the ungodly. Renouncing the hidden things of dishonesty, not walking in craftiness, nor handling the word of God deceitfully, they preached, not with the enticing words of men's wisdom, but with great plainness of speech, so that the ungodly, in the church and out of it, were filled with wrath. Stephen was so holy and searching in his address that the elders of Israel gnashed upon him with their teeth. But this is no evidence that he was imprudent. The fact that the revivals of the present day are much more silent and gradual in their progress, and they were on the day of Pentecost, and at many other times and places, and create much less noise and opposition among cold professors, and ungodly sinners, does not prove that the theory of revivals is better understood now than it was then, nor that those ministers and Christians, who are engaged in these revivals are more prudent than the apostles, and primitive Christians, and to suppose this, would evince great spiritual pride in us nor are we to say that the human heart is changed, or that the character of God has become less offensive to the carnal mind. No. The fact is, the prophets and Christ, and his apostles, and the primitive saints, were more holy, more bold and active, more plain and pungent in their preaching, less conformed to this crazy world. In one word, they were more prudent and more like heaven than we are. These are the reasons why they were more hated than we are, why their preaching and praying gave so much more offense and ours. Revivals, in their days, were more free from carnal policy, and that management that tends to keep out of the sinner's views the naked hand of God. These are the reasons why they made so much more noise, and the revivals that we witness in these days, and stirred up so much of earth and hell to oppose them, that they convulsed and turned the world upside down. It was known then, that men could not serve God and mammon. It was seen to be true, that if any man will live godly in Christ Jesus, he shall suffer persecution. It was understood then, that if ministers pleased men, they were not the servants of Christ. The church and world could not walk together, for then they were not agreed. Let us not be puffed up and imagine that we are prudent and wise, and have learned how to manage carnal professors and sinners, whose carnal mind is enmity against God, so as not to call forth their opposition to truth and holiness, as Christ and his apostles did. But let us know that if they have less difficulty with us and with our lives and preaching and they had with theirs, it is because we are less holy, less heavenly, less like God, and they were. 
if we walk with the lukewarm and ungodly, or they with us, it is, because we are agreed. For two cannot walk together except they be agreed.